Hello and welcome to the Clinical Audit and Improvement Podcast from AMAT, the audit management and tracking tool which is developed in partnership with our users. Once again, we're hoping to gain insight from our users' experience and to champion the wider world of clinical audit and quality improvement. My name's Tom Conlon and this, in this episode, I'll be discussing the audits we all do and their impact. And to do this, I'm joined by two guests who've agreed to take me through it. Laura Kirby joins us from Spire Healthcare, where she's the National Clinical Information Lead. Laura began working in the Clinical Governance Department in 2016, and to further develop her knowledge and understanding, also enrolled in a postgraduate study of clinical audit at Keele University. She joined Spire's national clinical team in 2017, where she now manages and develops their clinical audit program. I'm also joined by Craig Sharp, who's been the Quality Improvement Officer for four years at Sherwood Forest Hospital's NHS Foundation Trust. He's a Quality Improvement and Service Redesign Practitioner, and now I know what QSIR stands for. And finally, he's also a member of the Royal College of Emergency and Medicine Quality Improvement Committee, where he supports from a local perspective on their national QI projects. That's two really full CVs there. We've almost run out of time just on your CVs. Right, Laura, if it's okay to get you talking first, could you set the scene a little by giving us an overview of the areas that are covered by the audits that you do? Uh, Yes, of course. Um, So we're quite unique, really, in that we are an organisation that's obviously split across um, the country. So we've got numerous sites in numerous geographical areas, um, and we, of course, want to be able to um, benchmark our sites against each other, understand our services. Um, A lot of our sites um, deliver similar services, so uh, the benchmarking is really, really important just in order to um, give us that assurance that all of our hospitals are of the same, um, you know, performing at the same standard um, and we've got that same uh, level of patient care throughout and uh, the assurance of that. Um, So we have a lot of uh, service-specific dashboards as well that we um, order in order to populate and have that benchmarking across our network. Um, so a lot of our clinical audits are um, separated out by these different services. So we've got our care audits, of course, uh, which would include, for instance, our um, our documentation audits, our um, like their staff times kind of audits, our consent audits, etc. Um, but then we go more into the different services as well. So um, we can then benchmark and understand our uh, cancer services, for instance, or our children and young people services. Um, we've got our medicines management, uh, pre-op assessment, etc. So um, our program generally, uh, particularly in terms of like our mandatory audits, is very much based around the ability to really understand our services um, across the whole group. Wow, thanks. That's uh, that's, a, that's that's a lot. So, so how, Craig, uh, does does this differ from the kind of things that you do? Do you see similarities there, or can you maybe give us an overview of your sort of remit, please? Yeah, absolutely. So, I think there are similarities there. Absolutely. So, we have trust-wide audits here, uh, where we look at consent, documentation, um, management of diagnostic results, for example. But then. On the wider scale, um, there are a lot of mandatory national clinical audits that we have to participate in for you know, audits that are, relative, are relevant rather to our um, the care that types of care we provide to patients. So cancer audits, um, audits around COPD, diabetes, lots of different ones. There. Um, but obviously they're, on a, they're comparing us to that national picture, whereas I'm assuming from Spy's point of view, they're 
they're comparing nationally, but they're all the similar, you know, one one organization. So I think the the, the stuff that's that goes on is the same in terms of the kind of mechanics of it, but it's just how it's um, how it looked at from the outside or the inside, rather. All ah, right. So this this you mentioned the the mandated king because even though the title of this podcast is the audits we all do, I suppose there's a, a split here between ones we absolutely must do and then the audits that we just do. So I'd be interested to, to kind of like delve into that a little bit more. So could you tell us maybe about that? Some, give us an example of, a, of, a, of the mandated audits and, and are we doing them because we must do them? So, you know, they're mandated, but at what level are you thinking actually this is really important? Yeah, so, um, so NHS England um, basically have a, uh, something called the quality account where every year they will tell us or give us a list of audits that trusts must participate in that year um, as long as they provide that care that the that particular study or project is auditing um, and there is yeah there's no kind of um, we're not allowed not to do them um, and we have to pay a subscription fee and they are yeah they are detailed by we're run by HQIP and we say we're told to, we're told to do them so we have to do them um, where we have those patients that are relative to that um, or relevant to that particular audit. Oh, right. Okay. Um, but then, in terms of the some of the the other types of audits, they're ones that we choose to do because they might be born out of a, a particular incident that's happened in a in one of the hos- in our hospital, for example. So, um, I know management of diagnostic results were pulled up because potentially there'd been missed um, missed patient results that have led to um, you know struggles with care, for example. So um, we capture that data to try and make sure that. We get that assurance that that won't happen again, and see how we perform against it. All right. What, what, what about you, Laura? How does this differ for you? Are you, you, are you seek do you fall under CQC as well? Yes, we do. So CQC is um, our healthcare regulator as well. Um, however, we do not take part in um, a lot of the national audits. So that national audit um, section of what Craig was just discuss- discussing rather um, doesn't really. Um, cover Spire as well, or the independent sector as well. Um, it can do, but of course, they're more optional for us in terms of, um, we. I mean, we might, the likelihood is we wouldn't have um, a lot of those patients, we, we wouldn't deliver that level of care or um, so on and so forth. Um, but for us, a lot of our must-do audits would be stipulated from sort of, as you just mentioned, uh, CQC regulation and um, like regulatory requirements around the information that we need to be able to provide, um, but also um, our CCGs as well. So uh, we've got to be looking at the commissioners as well, what the commissioners want to uh, be looking at and making sure that we've got that information available too. Um, and I think that that does feed into a lot of our audit programme However, we've also got a lot of mandatory in an organisation perspective audits that are based around, um, you know, if we're bringing in new systems, um, we would often bring in audits to make sure that um, we are uh, performing as we would expect against these systems, you know, um, so for instance, when we uh, well, at the moment, we've just brought in a new system to manage our um, electronic pre-op assessment. Um, so we're introducing numerous audits in order to, you know, everybody has the standards now, everybody understands the standards, but how are we actually performing against those standards? Um, so there's 
plenty of mandatory audits to go out, really, um, and rationale behind why we might have those. Right. And so, um, so how, how do you set the agenda for, for those kind of audits? Do you, are you responsible for overseeing throughout the organisation then, Laura? Um, so we, well, as a central clinical team, we would discuss on a very regular basis, um, you know, certainly annually at minimum, uh, the requirements for our audit programme. Um, we review the audit programme every year and something that we are really trying to focus on at the moment is just making sure that the audits that we are um, undertaking we're doing those for a reason so really understanding the why we are doing those audits um there's so, so what about why we're doing those audits and then now what as well like what are we going to do about this information now um in a lot of cases this means you know if we introduced um an, a new audit five years ago say we've been working towards improving uh, compliance in that area and we're now at a point where we are suitably assured that we are compliant across the group in this particular area um that being the case we would then choose to um take that audit off of our mandatory audit program but that audit would still sit there as an optional audit so if we were ever to um you know, see an increase in incidents in any areas or patient feedback or anything like that uh, that is linked into this audit. Uh, we sort of see those standards maybe slipping slightly. We can absolutely uh, restart that audit and sort of, you know, bring that um, awareness back around and make sure that we're working towards that improvement again. And I think that's that's really interesting because I think there's a lot of audit data that's captured, not just in our trust, but probably across the across the country where we will capture it because it's the way we've always done it or we've always captured audit data about that and there isn't enough of that reactive thinking to well we've been scoring 100% for the last two years but we still make people collect it and that kind of creates that apathy sometimes I think towards some of the audits that we do and therefore you lose that engagement with people so it's really it's, it's almost a fine balance balancing act really to try and not overburden people with the data collection that we ask them to do but also understanding that is there an actual need and then if there is a need for that audit the other side of that is what are we actually going to do with the findings um certainly with our man- mandatory audits and the trust-wide ones that we do we collect data and we ask people to collect it all the time but that's so what that laura fantastically raised there is the real missing piece i think with a lot of audit that goes on not just not i'm not just talking from personal experience i see conversations on social media for example or with other meetings I go to with members from other trusts where, yeah, we collect data, but what are we actually doing with it and what's the point of collecting it? And that's a big, I think that's a question people need to ask themselves quite often. So this is, that's, that's interesting. That this I'm hearing this, um, so what phrase quite a lot now, more and more, which seems a good thing. But it's also, I suppose, in your role, Craig, as, as um, improvement is going to change the way that you approach these audits as well, and and you just touched upon it there with improvement versus assurance. I wonder if you could both kind of like talk me through that that improvement versus assurance side of of what you do. Yeah. So and and this was actually quite pertinent because there was a poll on Twitter um, a couple of weeks ago about this um, that somebody raised around why do people do audit? Is it for QI and is it for assurance and a little bit disappointingly, I suppose, from our point of view, it was around 60% of it said it was for assurance um, and they didn't use it for improvement necessarily, which is really interesting. Now, 
for our trust, we merged our QI and audit teams a couple of years ago, um, mainly because we wanted that opportunity to establish where the problems or the gaps were in the care we were giving. And then we were close to that improvement side of things because they are subtly different, I guess. Um, although audit is a QI tool, um, the, the methodology you apply potentially is different to how you make that improvement. Um, and we wanted also to get away from the idea of kind of using just reacting to two to two data points and assuming that there's a problem here. We've got to we've got to pick it up, which is kind of that rag rating and dashboard kind of approach to things where you see a red on a dashboard one month and it's like, crikey, there's a problem here. Whereas with improvement, we're trying to encourage people to collect data, time series data. So it's not that two point comparison we're doing. We're trying to actually look at data over time and check, well, is this actually just the normal variation of the, the service we provide? Which, yeah, it might not be great, but at least we know that it's in control and we're not things aren't getting worse, for example. Um, but then that allows us to drive that that improvement kind of idea and link into the methodology that we that we try and instill in people. So that's one of our our big big kind of things we're working on at the moment is trying to build capacity for improvement within our trust and using that baseline data from audit is proving quite useful and that link up is you know is is driving us in the right direction. I suppose it's it's changing the the culture as well, isn't it? From seeing, I mean, even the phrase we've got the the audits uh, we all do to see that as a positive thing rather than a a, a, a box ticking exercise kind of thing. Yeah, Laura, what have you anything to to jump in on this? How it how it, from your perspective? Yeah, I think that um, the poll itself is quite interesting. Um, you know, assurance versus uh, quality improvement because. In many ways, I don't always see why the two need to be separated. Um, you know, you can perform assurance audits that might identify, you know, room for improvement in which you would then need to improve, obviously. Um, and audit is a cycle at the end of the day. Um, you know, if you go through all of the different definitions of clinical audit, you know, you've got your HQIP ones, which are very much around the quality improvement aspects. Um, but you get some really similar uh, similar, simplistic um, clinical audit definitions that are simply just sort of like um, ensuring that um, the clinical service is maintaining standards or something like that. Now, that kind of definition, strictly speaking, sounds very assurance-based to me. Um, but in doing that, I don't see why it needs to be separated completely from the quality improvement aspect. Um, so it's quite an interesting discussion, really. I think that... Um, I think that one of the main things to consider when um, when sort of weighing up whether or not you need a bunch of assurance audits or um, choosing which quality improvement audits you want to do is you really need to be thinking of what's preventing you from doing these things. So you need to be looking at your barriers. Um, obviously, resource is one of the biggest barriers and one of the biggest um, sort of... <sighs> Well, I suppose barriers is a fine word to use, really, <laughs> for clinical audit. Um, and it's understanding what we have available to us and prioritising accordingly. And in I think from that poll, um, I believe assurance audits did come out on top in terms of like more, more people um, felt that they were doing a lot of assurance audits. Um, but it's understanding why that might be and actually is that separate at all from having that quality improvement or are they all interlinked anyway? And it's just like a communication and a, a, the terminology used, really, at, at the source 
Um, because we might say uh, a lot of our audits are assurance audits, but that doesn't mean we look at all of our data over time. We're seeing whether or not we've got any improvements. Uh, we're using that data to make sure that we are assured in, in our uh, the safety of our patients, in our um, the care that our services are providing. Um, but it doesn't mean that we're not looking at it in terms of, amazing we're improving there or um you know celebrating that success where we do see improvement and also uh, putting improvement projects into um into place when um it's highlighted that we might need to and i think i think a couple of the the comments on that particular poll were around the context of who was answering and who which team they belong to potentially so if you're in a audit team separate to a qi then i suppose you might qi team you might answer that question slightly differently depending on what you do with the with the outcome so as ever twitter is fantastic in some ways but i think you have to there's always that little question mark in your head about considering whether you know the size of the data set and who's actually responding because i guess you can't you can't always see that yes i suppose uh yeah talking on twitter to to a group of uh data specialists then uh it's an interesting kind of thing um this, this is fantastic do you, could you, I wonder if you could both give me an example of an audit plan which you're proud of and talk about, because we've not yet talked about impact. Um, and that's the kind of second half of, of our little title uh, guideline. So an audit plan and talk about a little bit about its impact. Yeah, I mean, I think that when we start talking about impact, um, I think that for us in particular, uh, we couldn't necessarily see the impact of our audit plans, our audit programs, etc., until we went electronic with our uh, data collection and being able to visualise that data electronically. Um, and I think in, in going electronic, it meant that we had more of an oversight over um, how things were being answered. It meant that people had to do them, otherwise like, we would be able to see if things weren't being done, uh, whereas before we, couldn't necess- we didn't necessarily have that oversight. In doing that, it actually, um, I think, in many ways, improved the quality of our audits um, because it meant that we had, uh, well, this might not be obvious, but we, we piloted our audits. We made sure that we had key stakeholders involved in ensuring that the audits that we were launching um, were going to do the trick, as it were. Um, so... I think for us, uh, like an example might be, for instance, um, star times for theatre. Um, we have seen an improvement in this over time. And the improvement, when, when if you were sort of like looking at it on an SBC chart, for instance, um, you can see significant improvement. Uh, but of course, across that SBC chart, you would have different um annotations to explain where the process might have changed and why that um, those improvements might be uh, realised. Um, and I think that having the access to the data and being able to discuss that data so openly now um, means that we can take a more collaborative approach towards um, being able to improve in, in various different areas. And in this particular area, um, we changed the way that we were sort of... Um, look at like the the key areas that we were looking at in order to be assured or or, you know understand uh where we were um but yeah basically just having that um all of that information available that collaborative approach and being able to then um amend the ways that you were really looking at things understanding what the actual issue is that you want to understand so um you know for many many years 
you might be just asking a question um, that sort of like was was a patient starved for however whatever period of time prior to surgery, um, but then you're not taking into account. Okay, as we were saying before, the what like what is the issue and the so what of that issue and the so what might be you know your patient information etc. And um, I think that there's quite a few examples across our audit program in particular where we have sort of seen that improvement and a lot of that is because of the um, access to information and now the ease of being able to really uh, talk to the key stakeholders and understand um, where what the problems are on you know on the floor kind of thing that might be leading to non-compliance in areas. Right, that's 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 fantastic. So, so certainly, world's longest answer. I'm no, no, somebody, I mean, that'll have to. <laughs> it's, it's absolutely fine. Um, what was the question again? Sorry. <laughs> it was to give us a, a, an example of an audit and its impact, one that you're kind of proud of. I'm not necessarily going to give you a specific audit that was that has caused uh, has has made an impact. What I have seen, and this is, I suppose, this is around culture and has been driven by. Um, the availability of data so it might be a little bit similar to what laura mentioned actually so um we've been historically very um focused on our the way that meetings take place for example have been very much um a result of the reporting that we put together every month and send out for them people to discuss um, and we've started attending um governance meetings um to try and be there in those meetings, listening to the conversations that should be or are being had around audit and trying to give advice there and then. So rather than us um, getting questions outside of meetings, we can be there, give advice there and then, ask what the so what is. So we, we listen to people discussing their audits, what they've done and what their outcomes are and what they're proposing to do. And we're almost in a position there to challenge those um those interventions, I guess, that people are planning to make. So it probably plays a little bit into the podcast you did last the second podcast you did around the the how good certain actions are and how sustainable they are um but the but recently what we've seen in some of these meetings is that rather than people talking about a report they're actually pulling up our systems live and talking about them with the live data which is a real culture change because people have it's, it's almost deaf by reporting sometimes you see a 40 page report about something um whereas they're leaving, they're actually using the live data to have that discussion to discuss performance and actually, they can see there and then where those potential um, you know, barriers, to use that word again, where the barriers are and or where they need to look at um, making, uh, exploring why there might be um, performance that needs addressing, for example. And I suppose the opportunity then to influence policy and to change that, again, talking about the, the positivity versus negativity of the culture, the, the audits we all do, and changing that into a positive thing that these are this, this is a great thing that we do these these audits having that kind of um, being able to feedback and change that must must be really important. Do you do you find you get that opportunity, Laura? Yes, absolutely. Um, we we really do use um, AMAT as a live system. Um, if we are sort of, I mean, I do like monthly meetings with um, service leads to go through data and it's always sort of the live system that we would look at. Um, 
And I think in terms of assessing the impact of an audit and, you know, your question is around things that you're proud of, I think the the things that you sort of need to be focusing on for that is the action plan um, and is the action planning part of it because that's the only thing that's going to, you know, come around and generate the improvement that you need to be um, or that you'd like to be seeing kind of thing. So, yeah. Yeah, right. So that that's kind of reminded me of something that's, again, it's kind of in the, in the conversation that's going on over the past year or so that I've seen about this, what good looks like. And I wonder uh, if you could talk about how with that, if you knew more about what good looks like, because it's not always easy to know what's expected of you, uh, how that would affect your approach to, to, to the audits that, that you do. I suppose, I suppose what a good looks like is sometimes quite subjective, isn't it? Um, and it, it depends on... Um, yeah what your focus is so i get i mean ultimately good looks like providing outstanding care to patients um but in terms of a, a clinical audit yeah. um structure or um clinical audit i can't think of the word that's where my mind goes blank um uh, a plan whether you have a rolling plan or you ever have or whether you have a um a set audit plan that's um i suppose lacks can potentially lack that ability to be reactive to things that are going on. So, I mean, for us, we have the luxury of having a lot of trainee doctors that come in and part of their um, professional um, development requires them to prove that they've done a certain amount of either audit or quality improvement projects. And that I think that increases the, the level of detail they have to go into, um, increases depending on how far through their training they are. So what we tend to find is we see a lot of one-cycle audits with no re-audit so we do some data collection we get the findings they come up we come up with some actions which may or not be particularly good depending on on you know what the problem is that they've identified then those kind of audits get get um forgotten about so they don't get passed on for somebody else to pick them up mainly because people don't have time um you know trainee doctors have got four months before they rotate so i suppose when we're saying what does good look like it would be a, a suite of audits that don't just get that single cycle and that two point, even a two point comparison. You actually get a rolling audit program that um, allows you to keep reauditing and keep improving that care. And as Laura said earlier, once you get to a point where you realise, yep, fine, we're doing really well with that, but we can move on to it. I mean, particularly some of the junior doctor audits are generally subjects that they might be interested in, or somebody, maybe their audit leader in their specialty has given them. An idea they've gone for an art they've gone to ask what can i look at and they've been given it um so it's about that it's about that continuous kind of re-audit that, those cycles because let's be honest re-audit you know or cycles of audit aren't one or two they can be 10 if you want them to i've seen them go on and on and go, go on and on and on in the past where we've done some around um surgical outcomes that have just lots of different um collections of data lots of different pdsa cycles that allow to keep seeing that incremental change and that incremental improvement. Yeah, fantastic. Laura, anything to add? Yeah, I mean, I think um, when you're saying what does what does good look like, ultimately that would look like no incidence of patient harm. It'd mean that you have a very safe, um, I mean, I mean, it's very unrealistic for there to sort of never be any incidents in a hospital or anything like that. But ultimately, you know, that's what you're striving for, to minimise that risk wherever possible. Um, I think in terms of your audit programme, a good audit programme is 
um, developed by using your information around what risks you have in your organization, um, where you, you are sort of picking up trends and incidents um, and, you know, analyzing those, thinking what might that be, um, being able to use audit in order to understand that problem further. Um, and then, of course, using your PDSA cycle in order to um, improve on that. Um, so, yeah, I mean, very similar, really, I suppose, to what Craig said, you know, you're what good looks like is ultimately, um, you know, putting a cycle in place in order to generate that improvement and sustain change ultimately. So the big question now, you're in charge, you're the absolute bosses. If you could change anything about the audits we all do, what would it be? Interesting. Um, I mean, for me, if, if I could change anything uh, when it comes to order, it would be the resource that we have assigned to order and being able to, giving everybody the time to put robust actions in place, um, more education around action planning, meaningful actions, what we need to be doing in order to generate change. Um, I think there's loads and loads of work going on on that and, um, you know, even nationally. Um but ultimately, it's it's engaging with the right people. And often the people that we need to be engaging are the people that don't have the time to engage with it. Uh, so if, you know, in an ideal world, I could improve anything or change anything rather, it would be the resource. Fantastic. That's an excellent answer. Craig? Um, so I think it's probably... All of these things probably point... All the problems that we might perceive in audit all probably link back to a resource thing. Um I mean, for me, and something that I see quite often and discussions I have is around data burden. So the amount of information we ask people to collect, whether that be with the national audits, whether it be our local audits, our trust-wide audits. Um, you know, if we spent less time collecting data uh, and more time looking at the, the so what and the improvement, then actually we'd probably have a, a, a program that would be easier to sell to people and easier to get people to engage with. Um, and I know that there are, you know, HQIP have said that they are, they're listening to people and they are anticipating that, that those sort of changes are going to take place in terms of data burden. So it won't say, you know, it won't happen straight away, but as they recommission audits, they're going to um, change the way they report, for example. So, Sometimes we have, so now you've asked for one thing and I'm going to just list a load now. Um, um, So reporting cycle. So you might, some audits collect data and we don't see the report for around two years. And it's by the two years have gone, you've already moved on potentially in your service. So, but it all comes back to that data. It's got to be timely. It's not got to put so much um, pressure on, you know, clinicians and nursing staff who are potentially you know, should just be spending most of the time um, treating the people that we're here to, you know, to, to look after. Yes, everybody, I suppose everybody has improvement as part of their job, really. You know, everyone has two jobs. But how do we make it easier for those people to do that second part of the job? And it is that taking the pressure off them. And I think that's one way we can try and do it. Um, so rather than, you know, collecting data, until kind of you know everyone's sick of it, we need to try and be be smart, I suppose, the way we collect it. And there are sometimes we see it where we people collect data for local audit, and actually there's data already been collected nationally. For example, I mean, model hospital has been adapted, so a lot of national audit data is going into there. So that's one of the things we're trying to instill here as well is that 
before you think about what you're collecting. Is the data already available for you to get from somewhere else? It doesn't mean you can't look at it and do some work around improvement. But don't let's not double collect data if we can avoid it, because obviously that just just wastes people's time. So yeah, that would be my that would be my thing, data burden and how do we yeah, reduce that. Fantastic. Right. Well, I'm going to wrap it up there, if that's okay with the two of you. Thanks for your time. Conscious that you've both got busy days still ahead. Um, I found this discussion fascinating, as, I, as I'm always doing now. This podcast is, is becoming a wonderful thing and hopefully a useful thing. So if anybody listening would like to join us on a, a future episode or has ideas for what they would like to talk about, then just drop a line by emailing podcast at amat.co.uk. And of course, subscribe and share wherever you can. Thank you, both of you. This has been really, really good. Lovely, lovely to chat.